From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good evening, friends. Welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. My pleasure to be with you today. The website is TonyPerkins.com. Before we get into the program, a special announcement, especially for high school and university students. You are invited to a special free worldview session on Friday, September 16th, from 4 to 7 p.m. at First Baptist Atlanta, where we will discuss uh, worldview, as, and you will have the opportunity to ask any question you want about the issues of the day. Wrestle with questions about the critical race theory, get insights into how to address LGBT issues, or how you can engage with truth in a loving way. You've got hard questions, and we've got biblical answers. It will be my pleasure to be there. I hope you will be there with me as well. Register for free online at prayvotestand.org slash summit. Again, that's prayvotestand.org slash summit. Or by calling 877-372-2808. We look forward to seeing you. Today on the program, lots of people mistrust the FBI. Is that reputation deserved? David Harsani from The Federalist thinks so, and he'll tell us why as well as what the FBI can do to restore the trust of the American people. Also, China is sending, China is making aggressive moves with respect to Taiwan. What should the United States be doing in response? Also, toward the end of the program, a survey from the Barna Group found that millennial church attendance has actually increased since COVID began, if you include online attendance. But should you count online attendance? Is it possible to attend church online? We'll have that conversation with Dr. Owen Strand later in the program as we consider what being part of the church really means. But first, our headline today. Last week, a jury in Aitken County, Minnesota, determined that pharmacist George Badeau, who's also a pastor, did not engage in discrimination when he refused to fill a prescription for an abortion drug. Joining me now to talk more about this is Connor Semmelsberger. He is the Director of Federal Affairs for Life and Human Dignity at Family Research Council. Connor, good to see you. Great to be back. Now tell us a bit about the background of this case. It sounds familiar uh, to a case back in Washington State more than a decade ago. The Stormans uh, litigated a case there over whether they should be required to, uh, to sell abortion drugs or not. What happened in this la- latest iteration? Yeah, again, conscience rights for medical professionals are under attack again. This case was from 2019. A pharmacist in Minnesota um, had been given a prescription to fill for Plan B, what they call emergency contraception, but what we know can and many times does act as an abortifacient, actually stops a human embryo from implanting and thus Mm -hmm. killing it. And so he was asked to fill this prescription and felt that it was against his moral convictions to actually prescribe that, to hand it out. And uh, so there was a charge brought against him uh, that he was somehow discriminating against the patient on the basis of sex because he was unwilling to fulfill uh, this prescription for the woman. And so this was before uh, the Dobbs decision came down. As you noted, we expect things like this to only increase um, in the in the days ahead. 
But it was a favorable ruling. Tell us, and this ultimately went to a jury. When when so many are making the are taking the position, including right now, the the Biden administration and the White House itself is saying that you have to fulfill these fill these prescriptions. How how is it that this jury came to say uh, no, you don't? Yeah. So fortunately. Um in the wake of Roe v. Wade in the 70s, many states, almost all of them, passed some form of conscience protections for these, for healthcare professionals, doctors, hospitals, to say if you aren't okay with performing abortion, facilitating one, referring for one, you shouldn't be forced to. So thankfully, a lot of states had passed their own laws affording these protections, and that's the case here in Minnesota. Um, there's only a handful of states that don't have these laws, but unfortunately, it's all dependent upon how abortion is defined, what does it include, does it include drugs like Plan B and Ella, does it not? So so again, thankfully, this court in the state of Minnesota ruled favorably that no, sex discrimination was not uh, taking place here. Um, but like you said, the administration now is coming down with federal rules to say you now have to. So uh, what we might see play out is some conflicts here between what the federal government's saying uh, healthcare professionals must do and what state governments are protecting their uh, own healthcare providers from doing. Connor, this might also be evidence that a jury of our peers has more wisdom than the uh administration does on this particular issue. But we are thankful for some good news, and thank you for stepping in briefly and sharing that with us today, Connor. Of course. Thank you, Joseph. Now, in addition, we have a bit more clarity on the FBI raid of former President Trump's Florida home. Reports seem to confirm the initial speculation that the raid was connected to allegations of missing or improperly stored documents. Yet many questions remain, including whether the FBI and Justice Department acted properly in their handling of this case. And, of course, it continues to fuel speculation of how this will affect the former president's decision to run for president in 2024. Joining me now to discuss this is Mike Davis, founder of the Article 3 Project. Mike, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Now, have you learned anything in the last 24 hours that's changed your view of the FBI raid of Trump's house? Uh, it's only gotten worse. I mean, we're finding out that President Trump was fully cooperating with the National Archives on a uh, records dispute, Presidential Records Act dispute. To, uh, every president leaves the White House. They don't pack their own boxes. And uh, he took 15 boxes with them. Maybe there were other, maybe other records. President Trump was fully cooperating, and uh, this is an unprecedented raid. This should have been resolved through cooperation. It could have been resolved through noti notifying Congress. It could have been resolved through a civil lawsuit, maybe a subpoena. But this idea that you're going to send 30 FBI agents to raid the home of a former president is a red line that the Biden Justice Department has crossed. Now, tell us a bit more about that, because you say that the that President Trump was, in fact, cooperating with the dispute over the records, which the National Archives claim uh, belong there. What then precipitated this uh, invasion of, of his home if, in fact, they were they were in they were dialoguing, they were communicating? As you say, the president was cooperating. Why this step? That's a very good question, I think. It's because Attorney General Merrick Garland has completely politicized the Justice Department. We've seen that where he has uh, sent sick the FBI after every grandma and goofball who trespassed and took selfies on January 6th. He's sick the FBI after parents legally protesting at public school board meetings in Loudoun County, Virginia. He's ignored these uh, 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 dangerous 
obstruction intimidation campaigns outside of uh, Supreme Court justices' homes that led to an assassination attempt by, uh, against Justice Kavanaugh, his wife, Ashley, and their two daughters. He's ignored Hunter Biden's laptop with smoking gun evidence of foreign corruption and tax evasion. So it's just part of a pattern by Attorney General Merrick Garland to politicize the Justice Department. He, this, this Attorney General has ignored 250 years of executive privilege, constitutional executive privilege, where presidents going back to George Washington can get candid advice from their, from their advisors. The, the Garland Justice Department, Biden Justice Department, has ignored this to get Trump. They've gone after Trump's chief of staff, his senior advisor, his trade director, and even his White House counsel. You know, I want to believe that it's not that bad. Um, I don't know if it's relevant information, but it's worth noting out that Merrick Garland, the current attorney, current attorney general, had been nominated by President Obama to be on the United States Supreme Court when President Trump was elected. So he stood to be on the Supreme Court. He now no longer is, but he is the attorney general and very much involved in this case. Now, Mike, here's Senator Marco Rubio discussing this situation this week. Let's play clip one. Now, look, this may all be shocking to most Americans. But the people I've lived around my entire life in Miami, they've seen all of this before. You see, many of them came to America fleeing Marxist dictatorships, governments that use the power of the state to criminalize the opposition. And they have long known what many are now learning the hard way. There are no limits to what Marxists are willing to do to hold on to power. Mike Davis, is that an overstatement? No, not. Uh, we've seen with this administration that they... This is not your Demo uh, this is not your parents or par uh, grandparents Democrat Party. These are not liberals who disagree with conservatives on how to get there on equality and, and uh, uh, due process. These are leftists. These are Marxists who hate America. They hate everything we stand for, and they're trying to destroy us. And you know, I don't think Biden's a Marxist, but I certainly think he's not all there, and he's letting Marxists run his government now. No one is above the law, and that, of course, includes former presidents. And these are political times. Most times are, but these are very political times. And there are people who will instinctively attack or instinctively defend just on a partisan basis. Now, let's assume that President Trump had done something illegal and the, require, the FBI needed to uh, take action. Is it even possible to do something like this in a way that doesn't generate accusations of a politicized Justice Department. Unless they thought President Trump had dead bodies in Mar-a-Lago, there is no justification whatsoever for this home raid. What you do is you work. President Trump, like all former presidents, has the office of the former president. They have staff paid for by the federal government. They have office space paid for by the federal government. They have security clearances for President Trump and his staff. They have secure facilities or skips. They, th this happens for every administration where they take documents and then they negotiate whether they're presidential records. And under no scenario with these records would pre President Trump violate the Espionage Act by taking these records because he was the president of the United States when he left office. He had the inherent constitutional authority as the commander in chief to, to declassify any record he wanted. He has that authority under statute as well. So this idea that he had classified records uh, is nonsense. They're not classified. But even if they are classified, he has a security clearance. His staff has a security clearance. They have Secret Service protection. They have office space. They have skips. There's no reason for Attorney General Merrick Garland to sick the FBI, 30 agents of the FBI, and a home raid of a former president. This is totally political, and it has crossed a red line. 
Now, Mike, do you think that President Biden had any knowledge of this? I don't think President Biden knows what planet he's on half the time. But, you know, I don't know if he did or he didn't. I, I uh, you know, it, this is a pretty monumental thing that the attorney general ordered here. So I would be surprised if he didn't tip off at least the White House counsel. Uh, but I don't know. Regardless, this is a, a uh, they, again, they've gone over a red line here and it's going to be very, very, very hard, maybe impossible for Attorney General Merrick Garland to walk this back. When House Republicans take over in January, they need to impeach Attorney General Merrick Garland's and FBI Director Chris Ray for completely politicizing the the Justice Department and uh, and doing this tremendous damage to the presidency with this home raid and this uh, they're ignoring of 250 years of executive privilege. Mike, one final question in about 30 seconds. Uh, I haven't seen any polling on this, but is this going to help or hurt President Biden? I think it's going to hurt President Biden. It's going to help President Trump because you uh, this this has managed to unify all factions of the Republican Party for President Trump. And it makes it very likely he's going to announce he's going to run for president. If he announces he's going to win the nomination. He's going to win back the presidency. And that is the interesting thing about this, the, the, the way that this is playing out. I don't know that middle America is going to like this just based on the fact that it's unprecedented, unprecedented and middle America just typically likes norms. And and a couple years ago, the Democrats liked norms as well. But this certainly is beyond the norms, uh, whether it was completely inappropriate. We continue to debate and we'll gather more information. But right now, it doesn't look good. Mike Davis, thank you for your time. Thank you. Now, coming up, public trust in our institutions is at an all-time low, which includes the FBI. Is there a good reason to distrust them? We'll talk about that with our next guest when we come back. Stay with us. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org slash Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that first by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. 
To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldviews monthly newsletter, visit frc.org worldview. Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose. Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. When the news broke that the FBI had conducted a raid of former President Trump's Florida residence, the reaction of many conservatives was immediate suspicion. Both the FBI's motives and also their motives and their motives for this unprecedented action. It doesn't take too long of a memory to recall the response by U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland and his Justice Department to the National School Board Association's cry against concerned parents who then equated, who were then equated to domestic terrorists. So such suspicions are not completely surprising. Why is public trust in the FBI and many other federal institutions so low? Can it be restored? Joining me now to talk about it is David Harsani. He's a senior editor at The Federalist. David, good to see you today. Thanks for having me. Now, what was your reaction uh, to the raid when you first heard about it? (laughs) Well, um, considering the long or I'd say the recent five years, five-year history of uh, of how the FBI has acted and how politicized it's been, my reaction was uh, distrust and skepticism. Um, raiding the home of the ex-president and the likely presidential candidate for the next election is unprecedented. And to do so, there should be a really high bar of, of you know legal reasoning, but also of suspicion. And we haven't yet seen what those are. So I still remain skeptical and suspicious of, of the action. Now, David, you wrote an article for The Federalist discussing uh, why you think mistrust of the FBI is not completely unwarranted in that you compared uh, the treatment of Hillary Clinton, who also had uh, classified information stored at her home, admittedly, uh, to the way that this was dealt with. How do you see those uh, situations as either different or similar? Well, they're a little different because uh, the president at the time of that investigation was Barack Obama. Can you imagine if the president had been Mitt Romney or George W. Bush, who had an, you know, who had an attorney general then investigating the, the candidate for the presidency? I mean, it would be it would it would have. You know, the media would have melted down if that had happened. But but in some ways it is similar. We had Hillary Clinton, who had a secret server in her home, um, which carried around 2000, I think, classified emails. But I forget the number, maybe 10 top secret emails that were being sent on the server that she was using to circumvent the law. Um, And no one raided her home, her 
Her staff would later use all kinds of programs to cl- to bleach, you know, to, to, to cleanse her server of all those emails, and no one raided her home. They literally used hammers to, to, to destroy phones and laptops, and no one raided her home. And she's not the first person that this has happened to. Sandy Berger in 2003, who worked for the Clinton administration, literally stole documents from the National Archive, and no one raided his home. So this raid on, on, on Trump's house might have been about something else, but if it's what you know, has been reported, then, you know, it just doesn't make much sense other than the FBI is is using it for some sort of political reason. Yeah. And there are things about this that don't make sense to me because I'm not sure I think this actually harms President Trump. President Trump is a difficult guy to make look like a victim. But I feel like in some ways they're doing that with this, which which makes me suspicious about whether this is really about documents, because I'm not sure it even helps them politically. Do you believe that they were just uh, this is exclusively about the dispute with the National Archives. I mean, I, I don't know is the answer to that. It might have something to do with the January 6th investigation as well. Um, you know, I, I can't give them that much credit in the sense of, of when I say politicized that they are thinking in this sort of Machiavellian way. I think that they just believe that they have the right to, in essence, go wherever they please when it comes to Donald Trump or other conservatives as well, because, you know, They've convinced themselves that there was some kind of coup going on and that they could, you know, that the law, that they're above the law, that there are two tiers of justice. So I think that's mostly the problem. And frankly, I'm not even against holding the ex-president, you know, to, you know, responsible if he breaks the law. I just want all politicians to be held equally responsible if they're breaking the law. The problem here is that Donald Trump is the only one so far who's had to deal with something like this when we have other presidents. I mean, Barack Obama. He spied on the American people. He spied on the Senate. He spied on journalists. And yet, you know, the reaction was completely different. So I just want an equal tier of justice for all all people involved in, in politics. All former presidents. Now, President. And, yeah, and other politicians. Yeah. yeah, President Biden actually recognized this issue of, of, of trust between the institutions and the American public on January 7th, 2021, uh, just before announcing Merrick Garland as his pick for U.S. Attorney General. Here's what he had to say. Let's play clip two. More than anything, we need to restore the honor, the integrity, the independence of the Department of Justice in this nation that has been so badly damaged. I want to be clear to those who lead this department who you will serve. You won't work for me. Your loyalty is not to me. It's to the law, the Constitution, the people of this nation to guarantee justice. David Harsani, that was the president a year and a half ago. What's your reaction to that? Well, it's laughable, right? I mean, uh, you know, when he was in the Obama administration, Eric Holder who had been involved in a gun running scheme, you know, that when these guns went to Mexico and later were used to kill American citizens, I believe, or a border agent. And he was, uh, you know, there was an investigation and, the, and Congress subpoenaed him and he just ignored it because he worked for the Obama administration, not for the people. And nothing happened to him, by the way, whereas now uh, Peter Navarro ignored a subpoena from the January 6th committee and he was shackled by the FBI. So the idea that uh, that. Uh, you know, these institutions are going to be less politicized under, under under Joe Biden than they were against Donald Trump is just 
in their imagination. It's something that he's intimating there, of course, that 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 these institutions has, had been undermined by Donald Trump when, in fact, many of them just worked against the president, the elected president of the United States. Who, and I'm not a huge fan of that president, but but when he's elected duly by the people, these institutions and the exec, executive branch answer to him. They don't answer, uh, you know, to newspapers and they don't answer to Congress. Even. They answer, you know, to the president, first and foremost. David Hartani, in about 30 seconds, is are we left to just wait for the midterms and see what Congress does in response? Yeah, I, I don't know that Congress is going to be able to do much. They're going to haul people that, you know, up there. But it's a lot of noise for American voters now in these days, I think. So I'm not sure this is going to change as much, you know, the, the, the dynamics of this election as much as everyone believes. Well, it is a lot of noise uh, in, a, in a pile in a very loud room already. David Harsani, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Coming up, tensions continue to flare in the Taiwan Strait. We'll discuss what's going on between China and Taiwan and how the United States should be responding or should not be responding with Gordon Chang when we come back. Stay with us. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make the difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home sitting with Tony today. Tensions continue to rise in Asia. Yesterday, Taiwan's Foreign Minister Joseph Wu accused the Chinese Communist Party of using Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's recent trip to Taiwan as a pretext for launching large-scale military drills in preparation for an eventual invasion of the island. The CCP leadership has done little to dispel such fears, leading many to suspect their aim is to continue keeping the region off balance. What are we to make of this? 
Here with me to talk about it is China expert Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China and the Great U.S.-China Tech War. You can find him on Twitter at at Gordon G. Chang. Gordon, good to see you today. Good to see you, Joseph, and thank you. Yeah, a lot of developments even today. The Communist Chinese released a white paper today that said, quote, Taiwan is part of China. This is an indisputable fact, end quote. What's your reaction to that? This white paper drops conciliatory language that has been a stock feature of Chinese foreign policy for decades. Uh, so, for instance, it does not include a promise not to send the military or administrators to Taiwan should there be unification. So this is really a step up in rhetoric. Obviously, this white paper does not really attract anyone in Taiwan. This is, I think, mainly for a domestic Chinese audience, because clearly people in Taiwan look at the more belligerent language and say, we do not want any part of this. Taiwan's for, uh, foreign minister, Joseph Wu, had this to say about China's ultimate intentions. Let's play clip three. China's behavior towards Taiwan is merely a pretext. Its ambitions and impact extend, extending far beyond Taiwan. It is thus critical that all freedom-loving countries around the world should work together to explore means to respond to the expansion of authoritarianism. Gordon Chang, do you agree that uh, Taiwan would be just the beginning of Chinese expansion if they're allowed to take the island? Oh, obviously. I think that you have right now China pressing India, the Philippines, Japan. There are these increasingly dangerous intercepts in the global airspace. Um, um, you know, China right now actually has told us um, they propagate this notion of Tianxia, or all under heaven, that the Chinese ruler is the world's only legitimate uh, emperor. Um, and that also means that the Chinese believe, and this is, you know, a lot of people have thought that they should rule the entire world. But the Chinese, since 2018, have been talking about the moon and Mars as sovereign Chinese territory. So this is the most ambitious ruling group in history. And if we don't stop them in Taiwan, we're going to have to stop them much closer to home. Gordon, how much of the, in the escalated rhetoric that we're seeing from China is attributable to, related to what we are seeing uh, in, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Do you think there's any connection? Well, I think that there is, because China saw the calamitous withdrawal from Afghanistan, and they, as Kabul was falling, they were actually issuing propaganda releases about how when they invade Taiwan, not if, but when they invade Taiwan, that the island would fall within hours and that the U.S. would not come to help. And then, of course, after that, they saw the failure of President Biden and the Western powers to stop a far weaker Russia. Um, so the Chinese look at this and say uh, they have an historic opportunity. And this historic opportunity is not going to last very long because somebody else is probably going to be in the White House in the not too distant future. Now, Gordon, most of us, we look at the map and we see China is really big. Taiwan is really small. Of course, that's not how military conflicts happen. But is it true that China would take the island in a matter of hours? No, um, might not even take it in a matter of months, may never take it. There's 110 miles of water between the main island of Taiwan and the uh, Chinese mainland. The Chinese would be doing something that no other, other Chinese regime has ever done, 
and that is combined land and sea operations. People's Republic hasn't done it. No other Chinese ruling group has done that. I think that this is going to be very difficult for them. You know, we saw what the heroic resistance in Ukraine, um, but Taiwan is much more defendable than Ukraine is. Gordon, what should the United States' position be in this conflict? We should tell uh, China publicly and in private that the United States will defend Taiwan, that we will offer Taipei a mutual defense treaty if they want it. We should preposition munitions and supplies on the island. We should put American troops on Taiwan. We do that, we avoid war, if we're clear. If we don't do that, we could have the worst possible outcomes. And to that point, do you really believe China wants war, is willing to bear the cost of war? Are they just hoping to bully people so that they can take Taiwan uh, without much cost? That's a great question, Joseph. I think that they want to bully, but they're doing things that can cause a war. So with these dangerous air intercepts, they almost brought down an Australian plane on May 26. Um, and, And they were doing something that no other military has ever done in history. They fired flares and chaff at the Australian plane. Some of that chaff, which is meant to confuse radar, it's aluminum foil, actually was ingested into one of the two engines of the Australian P-8 reconnaissance craft, almost brought it down. You know, those types of things cause wars. You could say, well, China doesn't want war, but they're doing things that could inevitably lead to conflict. And that begs the question, are they are they willing to take that risk? It seems right now they are. Uh, I think everyone wants to avoid war. They care about money. And, of course, it would be very costly uh, for the Chinese economy to do that. But we've seen uh, with respect to Russia that uh, autocrats don't necessarily care about the short-term loss of money. And sometimes they have other objectives. But, Gordon Chang, thank you for this important and quick update today. Thank you, Joseph. Coming up. A recent study on church attendance, which appears to be rising among millennials, but much of that attendance is online. Is that a good thing? We'll discuss it when we come back. Stay with us. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. 
with just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back homing for Tony today. Website is TonyPerkins.com. Now, plan to join us in Standing for Life at FRC and FRC Action's Pray, Vote, Stand Summit. At the summit, you'll hear from guests like Sam Brownback, Dr. Ben Carson, Oz Guinness, Mike Huckabee, Dr. Albert Moeller, Ali Beth Stuckey, and many, many more. This year's summit will be held September 14th through the 16th at First Baptist Atlanta. Come alongside us as we let Scripture guide how we pray, vote, and stand for life. Registration for the summit is now open. You can do that at prayvotestand.org slash summit. And as we talked about earlier in the program, there will be a special worldview event on Friday, September 4, September 16th, excuse me, from 4 to 7 o'clock Eastern Time. And that is for college and high school students, along with a 90-minute Ask Anything session. We hope you'll be there and bring your best questions. Again, visit and register at prayvotestand.org slash summit. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic shifted many of our lives to a brave new world of Zoom meetings, virtual classrooms, and other attempts at normalcy throughout the lockdowns, the concept of worship shifting or replacing traditional church with virtual services had emerged as a trend worthy of further study. And as the pandemic era accelerated that trend, it led many pastors to wonder what is going on with church attendance. The Barna Group has researched faith and culture for nearly four decades, and what they've found in their latest church attendance study may surprise you. For example, data shows that since 2019, the percentage of millennials reporting weekly church attendance has increased from 21% to 39%. While this seems like good news, it may also lead us to ask, what does it mean to attend church? Joining me now to discuss this is Dr. Owen Strand. He's a senior fellow at the Center for Biblical Worldview. Owen, good to see you today. Hey, great to see you, Joseph. Thank you for having me back. Well, we're glad to have you because I think this is a really important topic. There's still a lot of post-mortem going on around COVID and the reactions to it. I think this will probably happen for, for many years to come. But the, point, the question I want to ask today and get your reaction to, we see this report from Barna 
that millennial church attendance has actually increased since the beginning of COVID if we include online attendance. Should we be including online attendance? Is that a form of church attendance? Yeah, I would say two things basically about this important study from Barna. First, I would say it is against so many of the narratives we hear in a supposedly post-Christian and even post-religious America about the younger generation that they're just not interested in spiritual things and religious matters. They used to be 100 years ago, back when everybody had a horse and buggy and drank milk that was delivered to their front door. But those days are long gone, even moving ahead a little bit. The days of Andy Griffith with, uh, you know, respectable church attendance, done. Well, guess what? It turns out that actually a ton of millennials, a ton of the younger generation more broadly, does want some form of religious uplift. And honestly, Joseph, engaging this study, I'm really thankful to hear that in a, yeah. in a broad sense, that is. Um, but the second reality is that no, to your question, um, clicking a button, uh, logging into a YouTube service or whatever it is, just opening it up on your phone uh, as you're brunching on Sunday is not at all the same thing as uh, getting yourself ready and getting to church in a physical sense, in the historical, and dare I even say biblical sense, they're not the same thing. So we're both encouraged, and yet we're also not encouraged, I would say. And, and break that down for me a bit, if you can, Owen. What's the difference between participation in the church in a New Testament sense and checking in online? And why is it that so many Americans seem to think, maybe they haven't thought deeply about it, but seem to think that if I check in and listen to a sermon online on Sunday morning, I've kind of checked that box. I've fulfilled my obligation, and that's good enough. Great question. I mean, life has virtualized in the last 20 years, and then all of that trend was accelerated in the last two years. So here I am sitting in Arkansas talking to you on Zoom. So <laughs> there's a lot of things we're thankful for with regard to technology. It makes a lot possible that wasn't possible before, But when you come to the scripture, when you go to the New Testament, for example, when you consider the word ekklesia in the Greek, um, it doesn't mean a virtualized, pixelated gathering of people who aren't really together. It means the dead level opposite, not to be anachronistic, but to be part of the ekklesia in the first century, in the time when the New Testament is written, is to be physically present with fellow Christians or with people who are attending the worship gathering. There's no other way to understand an ecclesia but a gathering of people. You have some instances when there are different congregations, it appears, throughout a first century city uh, that are spoken of in the Bible. There's debate about that. But at the very least, Joseph, if you are a member of the church in the biblical sense— it means, and here I need all these weird qualifiers in 2022, that you are actually showing up in person, in your body, you yourself, not your avatar, and gathering with the saints to be edified, to be corrected, rebuked, strengthened, encouraged, blessed, uh, serve the church, and all the other things that the New Testament prioritizes. We talk a lot in the church about the one another's and all the things that we're supposed to do to one another. And I think it is somewhat intuitive and perhaps obvious that you can't serve one another and love one another and hug one another and comfort one another and encourage each other quite as effectively if you're not even in the same zip code. But 
That being said, Owen, uh, if, if we think it's not the preferred way uh, for people to connect with the church, does that mean that churches shouldn't make that an option? Okay, here's where we get to a distinction, Joseph. Uh, you know, theology turns on distinctions, so uh, we need to make them. I'm thrilled to hear that a lot of sound churches, churches that love the scripture and preach a big vision of God, which is what churches are in business to do, uh, grew in terms of online um, uh, viewing by a great deal in the last two years. I'm thrilled to hear that. The lockdowns were brutal and in many senses unnecessary. And a lot of people thankfully turned to Bible preaching churches uh, for hope and for help. And so that's great. We want people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We want them to be born again, trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. So that's good news. But we don't want to confuse tuning into a service, uh, watching a video on a service, uh, when you're forced or compelled, whatever the circumstances may be, to do so with when you're not in a lockdown situation, not going to church. Let me streamline that ever so briefly. If you can go to church, don't uh, Zoom the church or watch it online. That's not what the New Testament has envisioned. There are circumstances where we're glad for technology to make tuning into a service possible. We're thrilled that genuinely sick people who cannot get to the physical gathering can hear the sermon and, and watch the service. That's good. But for able-bodied people and able-minded people, uh, there is this imperative, Hebrews 10, 25, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That's an ancient call that still stands. God's plan is still best. Owen, do you think it's fair to say that technology is perhaps good for evangelism and outreach, but not that great for discipleship? Is that a worthy distinction? I think you're onto something. Um, you know, I would say even there can be additives in discipleship that occur uh, with regard to somebody watching a video as a Christian from a strong Bible teacher. So I want to even leave the door a little open for discipleship. But I think what you're getting at, Joseph, is that a lot of discipleship um, has to be taking the truth that you're learning. Truth is always the fountainhead of Christian discipleship, the, the starting point, and then putting that into practice and doing very basic, not exciting things like teaching four-year-olds or sweeping floors or taking meals to people who are shut in. Those kind of realities are where a lot of discipleship gets fleshed yeah. out, as the book of James makes clear. So you're absolutely right that even if you're being discipled in some way through videos, and certainly if you're being evangelized, amen, great, use any means necessary to evangelize, I would say, basically, within reason, um, you still have to have to really lock all that in through participation and membership, of course, in the local church. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, we can't know because it was a different time, but I, I struggle to believe that if Jesus could have reached his 12 disciples uh, on Zoom on a regular basis, that he would have chosen that path. There's just so much that happens shoulder to shoulder, um, hand in hand in some cases, uh, singing together, working together, crying together. It happens in relationship, the, the, the model and the example that we see of brothers and sisters in Christ uh, that you just can't replace virtually. But Owen, you mentioned the good news part of this study, the idea that Millennials are engaged at a higher rate, uh, they claim. Why do you think in this 
uh, post-Christian culture, as many of us would describe it. And, and the narrative is often, as you mentioned, that uh, young people are uninterested in, in religious matters. They're smarter than that. They've been educated out of that nonsense. Why is it that there is still this thirst for truth within the culture? It's because man naturally knows God. Romans 1, 18 to 21, we naturally know God. And at some level, honestly, Joseph, know that we need God. Uh, we rebel against that. We do not honor God or give thanks to him. Romans 1, 21. But nonetheless, um, a lot of those down moments in life hit, the moments when we cry together in the fellowship of the church as believers that you mentioned, when you don't have the church, when you don't have anyone to help you, man, all those cynical uh, TV shows and podcasts and all those horror movies and all that pleasure that you pursued in the party scene or whatever it may be, it does nothing. And I do mean nothing to comfort your soul and lift you up. And so I think a lot of the hard realities of life are leading younger people to see, I mean, suicide rates are way up too, yeah. that they desperately need hope. And it's all in God. It's all in his word. It's all in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I think you're right that a secular worldview works just fine when everything is going well, but there are literally no answers uh, when things aren't going well. And ironically, a secular worldview has made things go poorly for so many people that they are looking for answers and, and they, in some sense, know where to go and they want those answers. I also think I want to get interested in your response to this, that I think the, the, the church is failing in some respects when we try to compete in the entertainment game. The world is actually quite good at entertaining. They spend billions of dollars on that. And on some level, I think younger people are turning to the church because they're tired of being uh, entertained and they want something that's more substantive than that. Uh, do you think there's anything to this idea that, that TikTok and YouTube and everything else is enter entertaining us obsessively, even school, uh, and we want to go someplace to get some substance? It's what you call a market opportunity, Joseph, because we're all saturated in entertainment. So, right, we're not going to out-TikTok the world. Uh, the world is doing very well at creating mindless 15-second videos. Uh, let's not put our energy into that. I don't really care if, you, if somebody's trying to reach out in online platforms. I have a category for that. But in terms of our main investment, the church, in terms of what we really trust to reach people, I actually want churches, I do personally, to strip things down and not try to be an ersatz version of the world. Why don't we just try to be churchy churches where when people walk into them, there's this sense of the magnificence and transcendence of God. It's like you're in an embassy from heaven and, and you're not getting a feel like you get in Hot Topic at the mall. If you even still have a mall, you're getting a feel that is otherworldly. Everybody goes to Europe. So many people go to Europe and visit churches still, even though they're told churches have no point or churches are actively now in a negative world working against you. They're very bad institutions on all the LGBT issues and all this. Yet people persist in visiting cathedrals. Why is that? It's because there's a sense of transcendence there that people are craving, especially when they are glued to their phone uh, at every minute of the day. So all this to summarize and say, we have a market opportunity to speak crassly. 
we made out of cathedrals to offer people. Very few of us do in the evangelical world, but we can offer people powerful truth from the word of God that does not vanish like a little video on a screen somewhere and instead takes you deep, helps you know who you are, helps you know that you're a sinner, you need Christ, you're going to live forever in heaven or hell, and the way to heaven, the way to the new heavens and new earth is charted in scripture. It's glorious, it's hard, uh, but that's the way to eternal life. That's what we need to give people. Yeah. Owen, uh, just a couple minutes left here, but this study also found that church attendance is higher in non-white millennials than it is with white millennials. Why do you think that is, and should we even care? It's hard to say. I, I wouldn't peg myself as an expert sociologist or something. There may be some kind of residue of what we call the influence of the black church among younger Millennials, it does seem <clears throat> when, when you look at culture and you look at the backgrounds of different sectors of society, that there is more of a relig religiosity. I, I follow some athletes, uh, for example, and um, not necessarily skin color, but there are a fair amount who are black who will talk about being blessed and these sorts of things, or they'll thank God in their post-game remarks. There does seem to be a little less embarrassment in the black community uh, over spiritual things and a little more even of a respect if you identify yourself as a pastor or theologian. So I don't, I don't want to say that's true for everybody, but um, what I note overall is just, as you pointed out, that the narrative is not holding, actually. And we should in some form receive this as a V, as a victory, even though secularism has smashed the younger generation they are still persisting in seeking higher truth. So let's pray for the younger generation and let's reach them by any means we can. Dr. Owen Strand, we're out of time, but we're grateful for yours. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, man. Appreciate you. And thank you, friends, for being with us. As always, this show is about you and it is for you. We thank you for your time. We thank you for all you're doing to make a difference in the world. We'll see you tomorrow on Washington Watch. Until then, fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.